Morning, everyone. It is quite the story, isn't it? The last two weeks, we've been working through this very dramatic story of Esther. And last week, we met the villain. The villain is not the king, King Xerxes. King Xerxes ruled over an arrogant and oppressive kingdom, but he's much too passive a character to be the villain. No, the villain in this story is Haman the Agagite. He came from a family line that had set itself up against the people of God, set themselves as enemies of the Lord. Last week, we saw Haman end up in highest public office in the Persian Empire and to use that position to set in motion a plan to destroy God's people entirely. Haman is the villain in this story. Last week, we saw his rise to power and today we heard about his downfall. What a downfall it is. And as we approach these chapters today, I want to raise the question, what leads to Haman's demise? What is it that brings him down? Now, there's a bunch of factors we could point to. We could point to Esther's courage, her decision at the end of last week's passage to stand up, identify herself with God's people and risk her life to save them. Or alternatively, we could point to Esther's wisdom. Instead of marching straight into the king's throne room and saying, I'm a Jew, save my people, please. She bides her time. She strategizes carefully. She waits till she's in a strong position to get what she asks for. Or, of course, we can point to the hand of God behind the scenes, orchestrating seemingly random events to protect and preserve his people. There'll be more on that next week. All of these things are factors. But as we look at Haman as a person, there is one obvious major factor that leads to his downfall. It is his pride. We're going to zoom in on that factor today and see what we can learn from it. Because pride is deadly. It's still deadly today. And none of us is immune. Just pause there and say... This projector doesn't do red very well. This looks really great on my computer screen. If it's a bit hard to read, sorry. I tried. What is pride exactly? Now, C.S. Lewis is a writer with some great insights on this topic, and I think he gives us a good definition when he refers to the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self, which is the mark of hell. Pride is a concentration on self, Self self-absorption. Tim Keller helpfully points out that because it's about this concentration on self, pride can express itself in two quite distinct forms. The first form is the best known. It's the superiority form of pride. This is where I'm puffed up by the conviction that I'm better than others. I'm looking around and seeing, yes, that person respects my intelligence, that person admires my looks, that person appreciates my work, that piece and person wants me in their social scene. I'm getting all the ticks. I'm doing the calculations and the numbers are in the black. It feels good to be on top. That's the superiority form of pride. But there's a second form of pride. It's the inferiority form of pride. This is when you're doing all those same calculations. Did she compliment my outfit? Did he notice my extra work? 
Do I think that I performed better than the rest of the team? When you're asking all these questions and the results are in the red. And you're crushed by the conviction that you're not as good as others. You're always beating yourself up because of the way you don't measure up in other people's eyes or quite possibly your own eyes. And it all comes from that intense concentration on self. This inferiority type of pride, it's probably not so well known, but it's also a type of pride. Both of these forms are about that ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. And both versions are deadly. Now, when we look at Haman, we get quite a large-scale picture of pride in action, don't we? It's like a billboard. In Haman, we see pride in its obvious, blatant, easy-to-spot form. But there are lessons for us to learn here about pride in its subtle, hidden, insidious forms also. Back in chapter 3, Haman was made prime minister, the second in command over the whole Persian Empire. But Mordecai the Jew would not kneel down and respect him. When Haman found out about this, he didn't just send a memo or have a word to the HR department to get it sorted out. Chapter 3, verse 5 says he was enraged. This one little blip of disrespect made Haman fly off the handle into a murderous rage that had not just Mordecai, but the whole Jewish people in its sights. So intense was his concentration on self that out of an empire of millions, one person failing to respect him drove him mad. When we get to chapter 5 that we read today, Haman's plan for the destruction of all the Jews has been set in place. He's persuaded the king. The date has been set. The messengers on fast horses have been dispatched and the royal order has been read out in all 127 provinces of the empire. As far as Haman knows, his plan is going swimmingly. And his social life is going well too. He's just attended a special banquet where it was just him, the king and the queen. Talk about mixing with the top end of town. It obviously went so well that the queen has invited him to another banquet tomorrow. He's got all sorts of good things going on in his life. But then, the sight of Mordecai, who still doesn't rise or show fear in his presence, ruins it all. It fills him with rage. Remember, this is Mordecai, whose future destruction has already been secured by royal decree. Haman doesn't look at him and think, oh yeah, your days are numbered. He thinks, I can't believe you still won't respect me. It's eating him up. Chapter 5, verse 11, when he gets home, Haman calls together his friends and his wife and he boasts to them about his great wealth and his many sons and all the ways the king has honoured him and the two banquets with the queen. But he says, verse 13, all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. What a terrible place to be as a person where you can have all of that but get no satisfaction. This is what pride does to you. Pride makes you blind. 
Anyway, Haman's wife and his friends, they have a problem-solving mindset. They don't stop to sympathise, they just tell him how to fix it. They say, set up a great big pole in the backyard. In the morning, go to the king and say, can I please have Mordecai impaled on this big pole? Then you'll feel better, go to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Piece of cake. Mordecai likes the sound of that idea. And he has the pole set up. It is 50 cubits high. That's about 23 metres. The same as a seven-storey building. If you set up that sort of thing around Epping, the neighbours would start complaining about yet another high-rise. It is very tempting to offer you a bit of Freudian analysis of this very tall structure. From Haman's point of view, the height was to make sure that Mordecai's shame and humiliation was seen by the whole city of Susa. This is what happens to anyone who doesn't respect the great Haman. But you and I can see that the height of the pole illustrates the size of Haman's pride. We reach chapter 6 and we see another dimension of this great pride. While um, Haman has been scheming with his friends and building a giant pole in the backyard, the king has been unable to sleep. And so he orders someone to come and read him his chronicles, the chronicles, the record of his reign. Now, when I first read this, I assumed it was just because it was boring and it's something that would have put him to sleep. But then I learned that, of course, the chronicles were very much an airbrushed account of his reign. They would have included all the good bits and left out the embarrassing failures, much like an Instagram profile. And so this was quite a comforting read as well. But then this week, we're talking about this in my small group, and someone suggested maybe the reason the king couldn't sleep was because he had an uneasy feeling there was some unfinished business in his empire, and he was combing the chronicles to find it. That's an interesting thought. Anyway, in the chronicles, the king discovers that some time ago, Mordecai the Jew had saved his life from an assassination plot, and there's been a grave oversight in the kingdom. Mordecai hasn't been rewarded at all. This must be fixed. And so when Haman wanders in, the king asks for his advice. What should be done for the man that the king delights to honour? And Haman thinks, oh, he's talking about me. Because for Haman, everything is about him. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. Pride makes you blind and pride makes you a fool. Haman tells the king, chapter 6, verse 7, For the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Pride makes you a fool. Haman is already second in command under the king. No one apart from the king has the power and authority that he has in this vast empire. But it's not enough for him. He's striving for more and more power, more and more honour, more and more. Haman wants to get into the king's clothes. He wants to be on the king's horse. He pretty much wants to be on the throne himself. 
If King Xerxes had realised that Haman wanted all this for himself, he may well have executed him for treason. Pride makes you blind and pride makes you a fool. And so Haman doesn't see it coming when the king says, go and do all that for Mordecai the Jew. As it happens, I got to teach Esther to a scripture class this week. The scripture syllabus said that we should teach the whole book in one lesson. just happened to be two days ago. I tell you what, teaching Esther to school kids, you have to tread pretty carefully. Anyway, when I got to this bit, go and do that for Mordecai the Jew, the kids all went, oh. Because we can feel the kick to the guts that this is for the proud Haman, can't we? Missing out on this royal parade for himself is one thing. But having to make it happen for his enemy Mordecai, that's unbearable for someone like Haman. Verse 12 says he went home, his head covered in grief. This is what pride does to you. Not only does a proud person have an insatiable need to be recognised and praised, but a proud person is devastated when someone else gets recognition and praise instead. C.S. Lewis points out that pride in its very nature is competitive. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. If I'm a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world who is more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. By the end of chapter 6, Mordecai's wife and advisers, who were so quick to solve problems earlier on, now they've recognised that his downfall has begun. And they recognise that things are going to get worse from here. They're right. While they're still talking, the king's eunuchs come to take Haman to Esther's second banquet. And it will be his last banquet. Second banquet is there in chapter 7. King Xerxes, Queen Esther and Haman are there. The king again asks Esther what her request is, promising to give her up to half his kingdom. And now with herself in good standing with the king, And with the king having just honoured Mordecai the Jew for saving his life, now Esther speaks up. Verse 3, she says, Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. The king is shocked. Who would dare to do such a thing? Attacking the queen is like attacking the king himself. In the drama of the moment, the fact that Esther has concealed her Jewish identity all this time, that sort of fades into the background. Who has conspired against Queen Esther and her people? Well, if you look into it, you'll find the edict does have the king's own seal on it. Let's not talk about that right now. Esther points the finger across the room. This vile Haman. His end has come. 
As the chapter closes, one of the king's eunuchs helpfully speaks up. Sir, sir, just to let you know, outside there is a 23-metre pole set up. Haman was planning to impale Mordecai on it. You know, Mordecai, who saved your life and you've just publicly honoured. This seals the deal. Haman ends up impaled on the giant pole he constructed. He gets executed and publicly humiliated before the whole city. Haman's destruction is a destruction he has built with his own hands. Not only the giant pole itself, but all the events that led him to perish on it stem from his terrible pride. Now, this big lesson about pride that Haman shows us is spelt out repeatedly all through the Bible. Comes up repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 15, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, before a downfall, the heart is haughty. Proverbs 29, pride brings a person low. We get this message in the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah. He promises the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. Later on in Isaiah, the Lord promises, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. We get to the New Testament, we find this message on the lips of Jesus. He says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. As we read on through the New Testament, the apostles James and Peter warn Christians that God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Why does proud Haman fall? Because that's the way God runs his universe. God hates pride. Pride is the root of so many other sins. In many ways, it's the original sin. And it leads to destruction. As I said at the start, Haman gives us a large-scale picture of pride in action. He shows us pride in its obvious, blatant, easy-to-spot form. But there are lessons for us to learn here about pride in its subtle, hidden, insidious forms. You know when pride is easy to spot? When it's in other people. When is it easy to miss? When it's in me. Pride has been described as the carbon monoxide of sin. Deadly, but invisible. C.S. Lewis says, There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Let me ask you, in that dramatic moment when the king said to Haman, go and do all that for Mordecai, and Haman had to go around the city leading Mordecai on the royal horse saying, this is the man the king delights to honour, what did you feel? 
I'm willing to bet that you empathise with that visceral grief he was feeling. Why is it that we can feel that feeling with him? Because there's a bit of proud Haman in all of us. Let me admit there is plenty of proud Haman in me. For me, it tends to be the inferiority form of pride. I too easily get crushed because I think I don't measure up. And the real solution to that is not to come and tell me, oh, Tom, you're pretty good at this and people respect you for that. That's not the solution. The real solution is for me to learn to let go of this centrality of self. That's an ongoing project for me. May well be for you. Since pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, just realising that it's there is a really significant step. Recognising and admitting your pride is the first and most important step to humility. It's a bit like the original Catch-22 paradox. If you've read the book, it's the idea that crazy people will never admit that they are crazy. And so if you say you're crazy, then you must be sane. That's the Catch-22 paradox. It's a bit like that with pride. Someone who is terribly proud would never say, I'm terribly proud. Someone who's terribly proud will go around congratulating themselves on how humble they are. And so if you feel convicted about your pride, that's a sign that God has started to heal you of it. How can we pursue the opposite of pride? How can we pursue humility? Well, the first thing is to remember what humility is not. Remember how at the start we talked about the different types of pride, superiority-based pride and inferiority-based pride? Inferiority-based pride spends all day ruminating about how you don't measure up, but it's still a type of pride because it's still focused on self. That's not humility. Here is a bit more C.S. Lewis. I think this is the last bit. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all that you will think about the truly humble man is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. More recently, Rick Warren has turned this thinking into a one-liner. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And whereas pride is all about having a concentration in on the self, humility is about having a primary interest outwards in others. Putting pride to death is going to be replacing our self-absorption with an active interest in other people. Pride makes you blind and foolish and it leads to destruction. Humility gives you insight and wisdom and it leads to life. Humility will mean that you're able to ask for help so you don't get stuck in holes. Humility will mean you can accept and even invite feedback and correction so you can see reality more clearly and work more effectively. 
Humility will mean you can genuinely admire other people's strengths and rejoice in their successes. Humility gives you insight and wisdom. That's the way God runs his universe. And when we humble ourselves before God, that is the pathway to life. How do we know? In Philippians 2, Paul urges believers, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And he goes on to explain why this is a good idea. He points to the mindset of Jesus. The only one who lived completely free from that ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. Jesus' whole earthly life was a life of humbling himself. He took on the form of a servant. He allowed himself to be strung up on a pole, publicly humiliated by one of the world's great empires because of his overriding concern for others. And because he humbled himself, he was exalted. God raised him up to everlasting life, seated him on the highest throne. Because Jesus humbled himself, now he is clothed in the royal robes, seated on the royal horse. That's how God runs his universe. And in the end, it's contemplating Jesus, the humble servant, that will start to cure us of pride. Realising that you were so lost and guilty that Jesus had to die to save you, that ought to make us give up that anxious concentration on self, realising that there's no hope to be found in here. But realising that Jesus loves you enough to be willing to die for you, That gives you the kind of personal stability and security that you need to be able to start looking outwards and make humbly serving others your focus. Haman shows us that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Jesus shows us that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's follow him on that path. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the only one who has lived free from the trap of pride. You stand out as the one who lives for others and had the joy of that and had the reward for that. Thank you for giving your life for us. We recognise that was necessary that we had no hope in ourselves. We praise you as the one who's been exalted for us. Help us to cling for you, to follow your path and enjoy sharing your glory in the age to come. Amen.